Tim, 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 Ryan. Hello, everyone, listening to Dismembering Horror. Yeah. Yeah, hello. This is the podcast show where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslan. (laughs) What are we doing? We're super on theme so far. No, it's good. God. That that was Tim's, uh, that was Tim's Mr. Hyde side. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes, indeed, as we just sang and said and growled, (laughs) this is Dismembering Horror, the podcast show where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and we'll say it again, myself, Tim, as Lynn. That's right. We dismember a horror film every week. We talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy about a horror film. That's true. We dismember, we delve, we dive into, we do a whole lot of D words here to find that dearth of <laughs> deathly delights. <laughs> dearth. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, well, for today's episode, whether you watched it or not, the spirit of the show is we hope you did. We're just two, two horror friends, two horror fiends getting together. And if you uh, weren't able to get together aren't able to get together with any horror fiends or friends. That's what we're here for. So, yes, we just watched, from 1931, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. (laughs) What the hell? Why'd they do that? And there's a whole lot of Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hyde's, as well as there's a whole lot of Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hyde's, but we watched, indeed, the 1931 one, which... um, from perusing, looks like it's a lot of people's favorite or looked I on think as the it's best. The best. But uh, we are going to at some point pull from our hat the 1941 one. Mm, so right. we will compare and contrast at some later date. But for today, yes, we went to 1931 for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And what are those stats on that film? You got it. It was directed by <laughs> is this Raubin. Mamoulian, <laughs> Ruben, R-O-U-B-E-N. Sorry to laugh at your name, uh, Ru- Ruben. I think it's probably Ruben. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not laughing at your name. I, I'm laughing at my inability to know what it, <laughs> how to pronounce it. Um, let's say standard. <laughs> Ruben Mamoulian. Yeah, produced Mamoulian. by Ruben Mamoulian. Screenplay by Samuel Hoffenstein or Stein and Percy Heath. And it was based on the nineteen eight, sorry, eighteen eighty six novella by Robert Louis Stevenson, "The Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde." Can you believe it, Ryan? No, t- the serendipity of our hat, Tim. That's freaky as hell. Yeah, so, you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sure, I'll explain. Um, our last film was also based on a Robert Louis Stevenson story. 
The body snatcher. That's so weird to me. When they said that, I was like, oh, wait, right. For some reason, I thought this was written by somebody totally different. I don't know why I thought I mean, that. But What's funny is when freaky. I said what Robert Louis Stevenson was known for writing at the beginning of last episode, <laughs> I must have mentioned Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I forget. But it's funny to think I could have mentioned it at the beginning and the end and not even made the connection <laughs> when we pulled this. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we we went over, you know, the four or five known <laughs> stories of his real quick. This was this is obviously one of them. So funny. Yeah. The hat knows as we sure like to does. say here. And what is it by the way? It's a it's a baseball cap you keep our pulls in, right? It, yeah. What is it a a baseball team you like, I'm guessing or something like no, that? No, no, it was Nick Reffin's um Amazon hat that he gave out at a screening of drive that okay I so to. so genre connected Very in a way so. <laughs> wait i'm trying to figure out where that hat is right now we will need it I know. at the end of the episode where the hell is it oh i'll find it it's in this room somewhere <laughs> good and you're wearing your evil dead 2 shirt today so hey we're hell set yeah. we're set for our delving yeah, dismembering brother. And how do we start out? Uh, you ready? Is there anything else you want to want to check up on, or are you good to get into our? Oh, I'm put my feet up here. I'm working on our podcast studio slowly, so that when things go back to normal and we can be in the same room, it's all like set up and ready to be beautiful and fun and sound good. So, uh, just know everybody out there that it's a work in progress awesome when <laughs> you're asking slow uh <laughs> were you asking what decorations i might have i'm like trying to think of what horror posters i have i do <clears throat> have an original poltergeist poster oh that's shit. signed by toby hooper even though it's smudged um wow. i still got full it size like the full size poster yeah yeah Damn. so that that's could go up cool. if there's room for it i feel like well, i must have other little things i've i've picked up the so entire I'll, wall behind me will be purely for decoration, artwork, trinkets, stuff like that. So great. It's a we're fairly, gonna, fairly big wall. <laughs> we're gonna deck it out. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh I well, got paint. <laughs> <laughs> so much to do. Including this podcast. Indeed. And <laughs> For this episode, there wasn't a official, like a lot of with these older films, there's no official trailer I could find or that exists. Yeah. So I just found a fun clip for this one that I thought was a, just sort of a good dialogue-heavy clip that's indicative. So we'll, we'll play that, uh, just a, a little, little segment of that for you to lead us into our episode here. Cool. So... From 1931, here we go, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is indeed a great honor. I noticed you as you came in, my dear. There, I said to myself, it's too pretty a girl to waste on such a companion. Oh, but you are pretty. And what a figure, my dear. What a figure. That's a champagne. To you. To you, my dear. To your beauty. Hmm? Going now. Going? Where? Uh, home. You call that home? That pigsty of yours in Babbin's Court? Sigh, is it? You come off that. Oh, I like you when your temper's up, my dear. How do you know where I live? 
I saw you on the street and followed you. Ah, oh, my pretty, you deserve better than that. You ought to live in a place worthy of you. Buckingham Palace, I suppose. <laughs> That's the spirit I like. Sit down, my dear. Sit down just for a moment, eh? You should have a place that would set off that fine body of yours, a yellow hair and pale face, hmm? Clothes to match, too, my dear. Silk, eh? And a uh, bracelet or two, hmm? Champagne to drink, eh? How'd you like that? And how am I to get it? How uh, do you think you're going to get it, my bright little bird? Wow, 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 wow. For a little context, I should have given some context up front what this scene (laughs) (laughs) was. But it's when we have him, if you couldn't tell, as full Mr. Hyde mode. Well, I guess you could tell from... I mean, he's basically hitting entirely... He's a real scoundrel. Yeah, he's scoundreling on... um, What's her character's name? I forget. Ivy? Yeah, on Ivy. Yeah. Played by Miriam Hopkins. Great. Yeah. All right, Tim. So per our rating system, would you tell yourself to avoid this film, stream it, rent it, or buy it? I would buy it. Hell yeah. I would buy this film. I think that this stands up as like one of the great early um, pre-code films in general. Um, It's so sultry. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> For the time, I was like, "Whoa, what are they? That I can get. They're doing things that you never see." Um, also, just filmically, the like the techniques that are used. Oh my god! Um, there's really only one complaint I have about it that is kind of not really something you can. I mean, you can ostensibly complain about it i guess like but it's no fault of the filmmakers uh and it's the one thing i'll talk about in things that did not work (laughs) so like it's just so good all around performance like all around it's it's fantastic so yeah i think you put this up on the shelf with your your classic um although it's not a universal um i believe it was monster paramount yeah it's paramount you still put it on the shelf with all of those. It's yeah. so good. So, yeah, I'm a buy. Great. I You know what? I want to agree with you based on I can't deny that this was one of my favorite performances I've ever seen of anyone ever. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just so much fun to watch like how his take on this on doctor on mr sorry dr jackie jekyll mr (laughs) hyde his take on mr hyde mr hyde mr hyde um i mean i'll get into the details but i just loved it i loved it so much in short and it was and then maybe that would just be enough for rent it but what puts it over the top for me was just the how it was shot the filmmaking it's like a full-on just so well done. That point of view stuff was so neat how they do it. Oh my God. Whether it's contemporary or not, it's just, it's so good. So yes, I agree. Total classic. It's going to be hard for the 1941 one to beat it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What are they going to do? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's, as we'll, we'll talk about in things of note, there's, 
how good this one is sure, certainly hasn't stopped them from making it more times. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. well. many, many, many <laughs> a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde films. Great. Yeah, man. Great. Our highest honor. So would you care to have a different kind of honor in explaining <laughs> what happened in this film, Tim? As, as concise as you can, uh, give us a little summary. Super concise. Where, you know, the only question I have is I was confused as to where we are. So let's see, blah, blah, blah. Victorian London. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we're in Victorian London. We're in Victorian, <laughs> Victorian London. So it's like the late 1800s. Um, you've got Dr. Henry Jekyll or Jekyll as they call him in this throughout. And he's engaged or he, yeah, he's engaged to uh, Muriel. And, you know, he's he's a little howdy-towdy. He's a doctor and he gives lectures and stuff. And he's a little, uh, you know, on the edge of um, the bleeding edge, if you will, of science. And has some theories that, that the more conservative scientists and doctors around think are a bit silly or over the top. But his main theory that he starts to pretty much announce at the beginning of the film is that he believes that Humans have a good side and a bad side, and you could theoretically, scientifically split those two entities apart. And so that becomes his work, and then he succeeds, and he creates Mr. Hyde, um, or he creates his alter ego. He names him Mr. Hyde. In the movie, they kind of make it seem like because he had to hide real quick in order to turn back into Dr. Jekyll that's what made him come up with the the name. There's sort of this like, he's like, ah, that was my friend, Mr. Hyde. You know, it's sort of this like, oh, I've, I've, I'm so clever. I've come up with this thing. Um, I don't know if that was intentional, but I, I that didn't was my get take that. on That's it. That's really funny though. Um, <laughs> and so what that leads to is him kind of being overtaken by Hyde as a personality and the antics that Hyde gets up to, um, such as starting a relationship with a sex worker um, and really kind of neglecting his responsibilities as Dr. Jekyll, um, it costs him... His, not ex, not completely, but sort of costs him over the over time his relationship with Muriel, uh, his standing as a doctor and a scientist. It, his basically his world kind of implodes all while Hyde is gallivanting around and being pretty much a horrible person who abuses Ivy, the sex worker that he's gotten into a relationship with, and makes her life miserable. So Hyde sucks. Uh, Jekyll kind of sucks for getting himself into this. And then, uh, you know, he does his best to try to resolve it, but like, you know, his bad actions catch up with him and lead to his demise, I guess you could say. There's all sorts of fun stuff in there though. Like, well, yeah, yeah, I guess we'll get into what that is. Yeah. Great. All right, well, should we do that then in our first section? Yeah. All right, here we go, Tim and the listeners. What 
worked. What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? What worked for you? Where to begin? I mean, I feel like I need to crack a rock star for this. Rock star Tim cracking his rock star. Here we go. I, uh, I mean, I just want to get out of the way since I already said it. Frederick March, or Mark, March probably, as Dr. Henry Jekyll and Mr. Edward Hyde. It, incredible, man. I Truly. Like, when he first transforms, and it's, you know, and, and you know, it, it leaves, I, I guess, the first time he's embodying him, because, you know, we see his face for a minute, take that in, and then he just kind of does his little walk across the room, and the way... His face twitches is just like, I don't want to say, I, I want to stop saying things like it's ahead of its time because we've clearly seen that earlier be, a film being older is no excuse for mm-hmm. not doing things well anymore. But like, um, just so <laughs> a particular, I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, but doing something so uh, specific um yeah truly channeling the the simianness of the makeup job absolutely yeah but um making us making me kind of feel that he's uh Im- like embodying like what the the conceit of this idea is that there is this other side that's just unhinged and it's like pure impulse and yeah and, and you can see and, what's interesting we'll get into it feels like still mr hyde isn't a total total that end of the spectrum otherwise that would just be probably like an animal <laughs> that's right but what the what his sort of twitchy face does it's like it's clearly that's just fully coming from this side i don't know man i I'm like yeah, trying it's, to describe why like, his twitching face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's sort of a nuanced behavior that lets us know that he's still kind of a human being. That, but the the impulses and the desires to just explode with this energy of the quote unquote the id, if you want to be psychological about it, um, is is percolating so hard that he has he he almost can't contain it like i feel like that sort of the take that that march used that he's like it's it's coming out and if i let it out i'll just explode so i have to at least sort of kind of keep it under wraps but it's such a cool little behavioral choice but we see that he we sense that immediate threat of him that he could explode, and he does in the film when he that's when right he mur- when he uh, you know commits his murders or breaks the glass bottle in the clip we just saw. It, it really like, is kind of the perfect choice to to say I'm on the verge of an explosion because then yeah. we as the audience are just immediately set up to go, oh no, <laughs> like. Well, it- that was look out it was it was so cool because his character his performance whatever um it's 
it's exactly it, it it made me feel how I feel about that side of me where mm. I was equally drawn to and afraid of him, yeah. you know, Dr. or Mr. Hyde and his performance, you know, like every time he turned into Mr. Hyde, I'm like, Oh God, like, what is he going to do? He's totally unhinged. He's going to, yeah. you know, the way he goes after the women and kills them. And da, 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 da. But at the same you, time, he's like, he's like fun too. <laughs> you right. know, it's horrible. <laughs> I having spent many years working in bars and I've said this before, you know, you tend to um, uh, accumulate or, or uh, you, you build this ability to recognize a problem person the second they walk in the door, <laughs> right? Like your instincts get really tuned into that the, more, the longer you work in a bar. <laughs> At least for me, that was the case. And then, you know, this stuff that he's doing – like I've seen that many times. You see the person walk in the door and you go, oh no, here we go. It's going to be like, I know this guy's going to be a problem. Like give it 30 seconds. He's going <laughs> to go up to some girl that did not ask for his attention and start bothering her. He's going to come up to the bar and start being, you know, pushy or aggressive or obnoxious or whatever. Like you could just see it coming. And it's really funny to see like, you know, this is almost a hundred years ago. It's no different, right? Like it's the, we all just humans just have that in them. Well, and what, so yeah, it's such a good depiction of that thing. I thought this is maybe where you're going with it. This is so obvious now that you sort of point it in that direction. But this story, drinking that elixir that turns you into Mr. Hyde, is totally a metaphor for alcohol. Absolutely. What it's it's it it's. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't need to say more of that, but just a hundred percent. What what it does to you? It's uninhibited. Um, alcohol is an interesting thing, you know. For someone like me, like I, I don't really ever drink at all, and but like I am someone who's always in my head and can be more flighty or whatever. So a groundingness that alcohol does give every, like it can, I feel like, oh, this is actually is making me feel like more like myself in a way. But then, Mm -hmm. but then there's that line of maybe if you do it too much um, frequency or just too much the amount, you know, then, uh, well, then there is a line where Mr. Hyde comes (laughs) out too much. It's, it's funny. I don't know. It's, I don't know. Just interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, one of the really cool things about this story in general is that you can kind of insert any number of uh, metaphors in terms of the good and the bad within us thing. And, yeah. and alcoholism and or alcohol uh, abuse, I guess, is a very sort of topically obvious and like um, certainly applicable one. And that, but there's there's a whole sandwich of of you know different things you can apply that idea to, which I think is really cool. And I think a lot of it, you know, if we were to watch the other, whatever it is, ten or so depictions of this story, I think we would see some common there's way more than that. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Uh, some some we would see some common threads for sure. But I think we would also see that based on the time of the depiction, you would get this sort of nuanced commentary on things that were going on around them and and how 
society at the time viewed what what is the the dark side of humanity right now which i think that open the the a story that has the ability to have that openness and for you to kind of insert whatever you want that i love stuff like that i always kind of felt that way about hamlet for for example like i feel like you can kind of drop hamlet into any era and it really feels like comment you can work commentary of the era into it very easily so i i like that about this i mean maybe that the the theme the theme that i tuned into for this as the broader theme or the um, conflict idea or whatever is you know in that scene where he's as uh dr jekyll talking with it's like another doctor professor t- i forget who he was talking to but it's when they're they're on the street mm-hmm. and they're talking about basically the theme or the conflict being scientific conservatism versus progressivism yeah. progress yeah um where you know they have that that discussion where dr jekyll's like um pointing out the street lamps and saying how you know before they were these flames they were nothing or whatever but then can you imagine when the, they'll soon they'll be all incandescent lights and it will be a thing of beauty and then the other guy's like well i like how it is now you know yeah, it's yeah well and that, not that was so it all right there Obviously, we're gonna. There's gonna be connections to the body snatcher. You know, it's not that different of a thematic idea. Um, in that sort of the the what are the boundaries or what are the uh what's going too far in the name of progress or science? You know, like what is that line? So it's a very very similar theme. Um, at the at the onset, we just see how it plays out much differently yeah. in this one which yeah. is great because i would be bummed if it was just sort of a rinse repeat of robert louis stevenson like if that was his deal if he was just doing the same thing over and over again but he's not it's just broadly thematically similar well and even as i say that 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 was the biggest theme or blah 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 then i realized oh wait no there was something else i was thinking there that seems like even the deeper broader theme <laughs> than mm-hmm. that conflict which is trying to sort things in a box let's say as either everything exists in a spectrum of a dichotomy that it's Mm. this or that good or evil blah 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 um and then even with that you know being able to categorize and box uh ad ad infinitum ad finite whatever that is um (laughs) yeah you know what i mean you see that absolutely like because he sort of that is his undoing really is that Jekyll believes that he can cut away the bad side of him. And in in attempting to do so, he really just gives it, he opens the door for the bad side, and the bad side just takes over. In, even so far as he doesn't even need to take the serum, the bad side is so strong as, and has taken a hold of him so much, the, the hide side of him, that he just starts to come out when he wants to, which is even more, like, scary. Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, I'll use that to transition to that was something that really worked for me was it felt like, at least on this viewing, that the reasons for him turning into Mr. Hyde without the serum were just sort of on this on this they were kind of vague but 
had enough clues attached to them that it felt like something I could kind of construe was motivating it. Mm -hmm. And I just really liked that, that at least, again, for this first viewing, it wasn't something that was super, super clear that was causing the transformation without the potion. Because it was was kind of that it was the more almost stressed out he got. Yeah, because it was the two that I remember, I forget if there was more, was he was like in the park and he was sort Mm -hmm. of thinking about or talking about um, death. Yeah, and that was stressing him out. And then it was at the end when he's looking at um, Muriel, who's Muriel, his love interest, his fiance, and uh, sees her crying, and that unleashes the beast, so to speak. Yeah, it's al- it's almost. I think I would take. I uh, would frame that for me at least. I I was like, oh, it's it's. <laughs> It's almost toxic sort of masculinity framework where the Hyde persona comes out to cover up Jekyll feeling something. (laughs) Yes. Right? (laughs) Like that men are not supposed to express emotion or even have emotion or like have compassion or be afraid. Like we're not allowed to do that and Hyde is the embodiment of that terrible way of looking at masculinity. And I think that whether or not that was really the intent does not matter because it's so cool (laughs) for us to, like I said, to apply what the sort of thematic and societal things that exist for us right now, like that's the one that I'm going to insert right away because it feels right. I mean, that, that feels like it totally clicks as what makes him transform. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the cover. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> wow. Which is such a cool concept, right? Because even if you were to say that it was just sort of a metaphor for alcoholism, we largely you know, behave, you, we use alcohol often as its own type of cover, right? You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to, uh, I, I, I just want to relax and forget about my problems for a while. So I'm going to get smashed, right? Like we hear that something to that effect a lot. And it's like, and then of course we're often, you know, the next day going, well, that, that was stupid. Cause that it didn't do any good. Right. It just made me feel worse. So like it, the whole story is really this fun embodiment of like the desire to suppress what's really going on, and then the consequences of that suppression or repression, depending on which is more appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I liked to, like you think, you know, the, I don't, what, what's neat, and maybe this is why so many have been made of this story, is that since that conflict of releasing this evil side of yourself, it can basically be applied over any character um uh you know character type let's say Mm -hmm. or character type Um, like archetype yeah archetype thank you so so is this fun to think about all those possibilities but i like how it worked for this character uh Mm -hmm. or at least their take on this character for this one where I, i already used this adjective um but i think it was how does the 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 father-in-law describe him? He says, you know, when he's saying, you need to get your act together. You're too flighty. You know, he's, <laughs> yeah, that's he calls right. him something like that. Yeah, because he's because Jekyll's like, look, we're really in love and we want to get married like 
sooner rather than later. Well, it, it, his flaws, basically, he's the kind where he's like, but we want to get married now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which I, I think we can, will expand on this. My immediate, I mean, maybe this is just me, but my immediate sort of take on on that was it's a little bit of a veiled uh, metaphor for just wanting to have sex and like mm. wanting to consummate this thing you know, in a world where you're kind of not allowed to, right? Like there's this very clear dichotomy in this movie of like uh, sexual expression and and how we – how society views that. You know, Ivy being a sex worker and having her be this sort of like, you know, the other side of the tracks person uh, looked down upon, you know, and like not – doesn't hang out with uh, – the the upper crust right she she's she's low uh low status um versus muriel who's this high status woman and just like putting those two things up against each other is sort of commentary on how we view sex and like if you do repress it what are the consequences of that consequences of that repression so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. Right, right. Then uh, you take Mr. Hyde's approach. Um, so that, no, I agree totally. <laughs> right. In a, in a story sense, yes, absolutely. That's something else that's going on. But still, as far as on his character type and like his character flaw, I don't think, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to do with that metaphor you brought up. Because it seems more like, you know, like the guy says, if I if it's too flighty or whatever but his character flaw is the kind of thing where you someone who could benefit from planning and patience and uh, yeah yeah and sort true. of looking for more context for something and taking into account where other people are at you know just right. all those all those things because we see that with his with his work and his scientific approach where other people tend to butt heads with him, not necessarily for what he's doing, but for how he's doing it, where it seems like he's doing it with zero hesitation and just this very yeah. fixed goal in mind, and he just wants to be at that goal. You he, know. Take, he makes up a, a potion <laughs> and drinks it right away. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> right, And but, you know, he like, writes a note saying, I might die if I die, you know, but that, yeah. that's exactly yeah. it. He's, he's no precautions. He's just wants, he's someone who's so determined to be at their thing that they right. think is going to make them happy. They don't actually, then, you know, you could say then you aren't as present as you should be or whatever, or, you know, you, you uh, overlook other people's feelings and needs, which then, because it's those things, that's why it feels like that's such a fun character to put in this Jekyll Hyde scenario, because with Hyde, you're just pushing that to another, you know, to another full few degrees of, yeah. uh, following those, those impulses. Yeah. Even more, uh, those selfish impulses even more. Well, and I think that's, what's so genius about this, I, I, you know, I, I actually downloaded the, um, the, the book or the, the story itself, um, to read, which I'll do at some point, but the genius of how they depict Jekyll in this, at least, is that they show very clearly that that's already in him, like the Hyde impulsive, uh, thing that you're talking about 
is is that is a part of Jekyll at the onset. He 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 does things impulsively and disregards other people and wants what he wants. And the idea that Hyde is this other side of him or this other entity is sort of like, no, it's just him, right? Like, don't forget, it's him. He's just letting the, you know, the whatever, the the monster out. But he is already the monster. And I I love that kind of storytelling where it's like it's not just hero versus monster, right? Like the hero is the monster and we have to come to terms with that somehow. And I found myself at various times being like I'm rooting for him to not get caught, but he sucks. Yeah. And he's he's he did this to himself. Like he needs to die. And so that's a really fun place to be. And there are all sorts of fun examples of modern storytelling using that construct in a more nuanced or le- uh, more subtle way. And I think the one that for me that stands out really, really right away is Don Draper in Mad Men. He is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like it's the same construct, right? Like he has this sort of one life and one way of being that he gets a lot of respect for and a lot of people admire him or whatever, whatever, right? Like it's the quote unquote good side, but he cannot keep the bad side. Uh, a, he can't keep a lid on the bad side very well. And it comes out and then he acts badly and everybody around him suffers for it, including himself. So this theme of like, you know, the, the, the turmoil that's, within us when we don't address it in a actually like positive and constructive way we basically let the lid off and the monster comes out and it just runs us around and i think that's a really fun character construct to play around with we see it all the time i'd like to see it more with women actually because i think women tend to not be allowed in storytelling often to to show that they've got that go- that turmoil going on or it's depicted in a way that's problematic, you know, contemporarily, certainly in the past. But if they were even given an opportunity to be the, the person who were paying attention to or, or focusing on as, as the you know, lead of the story. But that's a tangent. Um, but, yeah, I just like everything about this construct. I like – and I like this construct in uh, very similar to the body snatcher, but there is something fun about the characters in the setting being the sort of high society folk. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just how the way it exposes that, hey, this ain't it in a way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I and like that, that it context. often is the, it's the, um, you know, the clamps that are on you in that society in that high society world that that actually squeeze out the the bad more yep yep there's just always something fun about then you know like the stuffy characters who we see being like well you need to get your (laughs) act together and this is you know what about your proper manners and then just having something uh throw all that in the back of their face is always fun (laughs) yeah that's great um all right i feel like we should talk 
about the effects and the like the camera work and some of the more technical things because it is truly some of the coolest stuff. I was so yeah, it totally got me when he first transforms. It's this incredible effect. Oh where God. it's not it's completely in camera with no fades or anything. And what what's cool about those first transportation transformations there's there's multiple things happening that make it so cool. It's this effect they do that was I'm guessing I'm not thinking about it at the time but something with colored filters that's exactly where they what can, it is, yeah. Yeah, where they can expose the the deeper contour um uh, 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 paint makeup yeah. on his face, so we basically see the transformation, the initial stages of it happening live in a way that just oh, it looks so real. It's so amazing. <laughs> so we t- and, we talked about this before. I think it was when we watched Hexen. Maybe mm-hmm. they did it with one, what, the old lady. Uh, I think it was that one. It's a really cool device, right? And you can do it still. Like, it totally applies if you want to do this in camera. It's an amazing effect. But the science behind it is really simple, right? Black and white film cannot see color, (laughs) right? But if you put, let's say, red makeup on on the contours of somebody's face, and then you put a red filter over the black and white film lens the red filter will negate the red makeup it'll just not you it won't show up but when you pull the red filter away the uh, the lens i think you actually need a blue filter too but whatever you're pulling the red away to to then have that show up in camera and it looks so cool to have this in-camera transition of like their whole face changes it's it's really incredible and like i i want to do like an experiment with it i want to mess around with it now and and like we should let's film something where we do this just to play around with it because it's so so cool yeah um and then on top of just that effect like the the first time he transforms they're doing all these other just smart working with what you have things that are just so much more effective than if you could just CG at all where <laughs> yeah the they the, it's like in close up on his face and then sort of goes down quickly to his hands and then back up to his face and back down to his other hand and those whip pans yeah. they cover the cut like seamlessly really it's, well <laughs> and so yeah it's it's really 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 good really effective and then and then so smart too. So then you know we kind of in that get the hand tra- transitioning, and then like goes back up to his face, then down to the other hand, and then that didn't even need a cut because you assume that hand, you know, we've delayed seeing, so that's further along. But is this <laughs> yeah. such a cool way to sort of selectively show this progression, and not just in a in a oh it's smart how to hide the effects, but it it in a storytelling sense works as far as bringing you into that progression. Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredible. I I have to say the 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 makeup is so it's so kind of amazing to me because I 
even though I know that it's still Frederick March. I was like, I do not see him anymore. Yeah. And that's pretty remarkable, right? Like, I think part of that is, you know, give credit where credit's due, is, is his change in performance and demeanor. Like, he, Oh, totally. He, I, I didn't is, think it was the same actor even, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it is pretty wild to think that that is the same person. They did a cool thing, too. They, You can kind of see it in a couple shots, but they enlarge his nostrils <laughs> with dark makeup. Yeah. And it's really well covered. Like you, you, you catch it a couple times. At least I did. But generally speaking, it just has this very strange effect. They lower his hairline. They bush up his eyebrows and or his, just his brow in general. So, like you said, he he has this more simian sort of look. Um, the teeth are very uh, protruding, um, which must have been a huge pain in the ass for him. <laughs> but whatever. It only helps the performance. Yeah. Um, but all those things are just – it's really wild. I, like I, I'm super impressed with all of that aspect of this movie. Uh, yeah, and since I already touched on, you know, sort of uh, some filming techniques, how it was shot, I just want to get more on that, how it was shot so well overall and some of the techniques they used where you – open with this extensive point of view sequence leading up to the moment he steps up to the lectern basically i Um, i immediately is like this is ballsy filmmaking. well it it's so maybe you can put into words why because i can't find it right now (laughs) but it just feels so on theme in a way a hundred percent yeah it's this thing of like it's um pure subjectivity right we're only going to be allowed to see the world his world through his eyes for the first five minutes of the movie which is in and of itself to the point of the whole story he is trapped in his narrow tunnel vision view of his world and he's refuting the world around him and that is the movie, right? That the consequences of refuting the world around you is that you make bad decisions and eventually that catches up with you. Right. It's it just helps such us. a brilliant way to set us up to be like, oh, we're in his head. Like he, he he's – it's just his world. Yeah, and it helps us sympathize, empathize, whatever with that subjectivity totally. of like, yeah, we're – seeing everyone else from his point of view. Okay, we get what it's like being him. Yeah, it's neat. Right, right. He, we walk into the lecture hall and we see all these people having their little conversations, but we're him. We're him seeing these things, right? If you shot it, you know, in a more traditional way, we wouldn't get that sense of like he's hearing what these people are saying about him. Or like he's waiting to get their attention with his presence. But by putting it in this POV, we immediately are going, oh, my God, like there there are these two old scientists being like, ah, this guy, what the hell is he going to talk about today? You know, it's like we know that he's hearing them just by virtue of being in this POV. Yeah, and and it's not just like he's – sitting there watching people go by this camera representing his pov it's 
walking into different rooms. It's whipping around. And then they continue the POV camera thing with his transformation and sort of leading up to the transformation of looking into the mirror. So it's this great effect where I guess it was a double room with him on the other side. Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah. There's there's like two ways you could do it. But yeah, I think you're right. The double room is cool. And it's so fun because then we see like his reflection, which I guess, you know, is actually the actor drinking the potion. And then we see, um, you know, it must be the cameraman or someone standing by, uh, <laughs> like sort of holding up an out of focus glass, yeah. <laughs> like to the, the mouth of the camera. Yeah. Um, Ugh, and then what's, what stuff. took, so if that wasn't, you know, didn't, didn't get me involved enough as is, then you're wondering, okay, well, where, where's it going to go after this? So once we finally do uh, cut out, of the POV mode at the beginning, it just keeps it up with how well it's shot overall. Yeah. Like with when he steps up to the lectern, there was a shot, or when he's already at the lectern, uh, we we like see him from a wide at one point, and it's he's framed like perfectly symmetrically between two heads of people in the in the audience. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just cool as it keeps up the moving camera stuff. Cuts in, cuts out at the right time. That's just all great. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, and we can expand on this later, but the cinematographer was Carl Struess. And we'll, I'll go into his, his uh, filmography, but he's one of, one of the best so, of the era, for sure. I think it's Strauss is how is I've it, heard it. Is it Strauss? Probably. So uh, there's also transitional filmmaking that is in this that is amazing transitional Um, meaning like there are crossfades that are sort of match cut like where uh i can't remember exactly i remember there's one that was like uh damn i forget what it was but um i'll just give an arbitrary example like you'll be looking at a lamp you know you'll pan to a lamp and then you'll crossfade to a lamp in the next scene you know, oh, yeah. little, little, little touches, just really subtle nuanced no, that, touches that sort like of, that. That make you sit up. Yeah, I remember one that you're talking about, if it was a crossfade or not, but where like we see sort of the body of one of the women like in a white dress and then it I think does a quick cross dissolve or cut over into all of a sudden they're on the dance floor in the mm. same dress. Mm-hmm. Um, it just yes, sort of makes you, yes. just sort of engages you that little extra bit keeps you yeah and they use they use a bunch of different techniques too for for transitions like for example they use this um this uh wipe where you're actually seeing two scenes at the same time you're seeing you know ivy being upset and and there's a diagonal cross uh wipe that stops at the diagonal and you see Muriel in the other, in the lower right. And you get both of them living at the same time in, in the shot in their two respective worlds. And so just taking this theme of like having this split, you know, of the personality and expanding that into the, the, the visual filmmaking of the story is just great. It's such good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of my other favorite shots or sequences and how it was shot was the one I already mentioned where he transforms into uh, Hyde towards the end when he sees, um, uh, was it Miriam? No, 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 Ivy uh, transforming when she's, uh, or sorry, sees her crying, so then transforms. Yeah, and, Muriel, yep. 
Muriel, thanks. Um, and his transformation is done like it's all from the back, so we don't see it happening. But yeah. it's just it's so tense and suspenseful because you just sort of you see his back before he's transformed and he sees her. But then we sort of sense his transformation may or may not be happening. And mm-hmm. then we ease into him like approaching the window, like, you know, as the stalker he is. And you just go, oh God, he did transform. Oh, and it's just so effective just to have it all be not just in one shot, but all from behind and his yeah. back. Oh, it's so cool. Well, and then and then further in that moment, when we cut away. We cut to inside the room looking out through these obscured windows. So we can't actually see him. And I don't know this for sure. I'd have to watch it again. But I I think what – well, you there's a uh, – there's a – you know, these big windows and he's – let's say – so on the left side of the frame, you've got a bunch of windows and then there's wall and then there's the next set of windows on the right side of the frame. And they physically have him outside of the really obscured windows. So we still don't know if he's changed. And then he walks from left to right, or our left to right, to the less obscured windows, the doorway that he comes into the room, and he's changed. So there's mm. there's this split down the middle of the frame, basically, that he crosses this threshold and then he's hide again. And it's we're waiting to find out right but just from a from a a physical and a visual standpoint like using these it's almost like using quadrants in in the screen right like you're using the left or the right or the upper left and the lower right or whatever the four quadrants they do that a lot they do it at diagonals and that stuff's just really smart and it and it shows how like this is not new, right? Like modern filmmakers, it's not like they're reinventing the wheel. Like and when these, we saw this in Piercing, yeah. Exactly. And these these filmmakers in the 30s were doing this stuff. Like that is so awesome. And it just goes to show like how much they set the stage for modern filmmaking. Like they were the the OGs. Yeah. And some something else I noticed as far as doing things, how we do them now, setting the stage – uh, I noticed with this is like what we said with the body snatcher, which was, I think that was, you know, more, I forget if it was literally universal production, but it was definitely more, you know, of the ilk of mm-hmm. one of those. Um, so this is not putting those down at all. I love the expediency and kind of the sticking to the A story that those have. But this one, it was, it was, it was not one of those where it was like a full closing in on, you know, closer to two hours, I think an hour, 47 minutes, something like that running time. Um, so just, I liked that it had sort of the, the girth of what we'd call <laughs> yeah. a more typical film of today, just where, and I was into it in that sense too, of like the setup with the characters and before he turns into Mr. Hyde, it all set the stage in a fun way and it didn't really lose its steam for me. Yeah. I think, you know, honestly, the, the more I think about it, the more I think that you can kind of point to how, um, well-versed in in art history in particular these filmmakers were so for example obviously quadrants like this is nothing new right like using the the golden ratio or using quadrants or whatever that's been around in in art forever so a couple little fun examples like 
of just devices that they use. When when Dr. Jekyll is is really making his decision to take the serum and writing the note saying, you know, if I die, whatever. I don't know if he's making a decision. He's decided. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty much we... decided. Um, <laughs> he's in the process of going through with it, let's say. Yeah. He the way they shoot this is they put they make him small in frame. He's far away. They set the camera back. They set it behind his table of all of his little tubes and and beakers and whatever. But then they physically have a bar in the foreground. Like it's – I don't know what it is. It's one of the bars that he like swings around on later in the fight scene, which is super awesome. But they have that bar in the foreground that is crossing him and it's crossing him right at his neck, which is sort of an old art history. You know, this is a thing that like Renaissance artists would do, right? Like it's an imposing death sort of sim- symbolic thing, you know, cutting the head off um, with with – something right it's in um the last supper for example there's a hand that's pointing right at at jesus's neck i think it's at jesus maybe it's at whoever it doesn't matter point being this symbology stuff that that is you know had been around forever and that you know you as a art history or uh, uh just a consumer of art um and a maker of art, you would know these things at that time for sure. And then they're just applying them to filmmaking. And it, I think it's great because it has this sort of subtle, um, even if you don't know that, you don't need to know it. It has this subtle effect on us. Do you think you only say that you're attributing that to a knowledge of art in like the painting sense because it's an earlier film? Because I say I, I'm aware and recognize all those things just coming from film you know no what i'm saying is in spite of it being an early film clearly these are people who were aware of those things yeah. in making their films and that there is a deliberateness to their filmmaking it's yeah, not absolutely. arbitrary i'm just saying i don't i wouldn't source that next necessarily to it has to be art from outside of films themselves that's informing it you know no but in this case it film is so young that's that and that's that's my point that's why you put it in those yeah in that that yeah that these people in particular i think they're applying older tools right to filmmaking this newer art form and i think that's cool to see and then that has it's all connected right because then that pushes that along and like you don't have to if you were a filmmaker right now, you don't have to have seen these movies to know those things necessarily. And you don't have to know those things to sort of implicitly understand those things from a visual point of view, like that they're in there, but it's cool. I think it's just cool. Anytime you see those intentional or unintentional devices. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so what else we got here? So much the we got to mention the pre-code influence, which was just so neat to see in a 1931 film. We had actual side boob, Tim. Yeah, it was kind of incredible. Full, side boob. Full leg. Uh, I mean, she Can puts you, she puts yeah. his hand between her thighs. Like that is it's just unheard of in I most modern or most filmmaking of the right. Well. I just that where she's where we have. Um, I was confused that it's it's Muriel 
is the one he kills who's not the no. wait, wait okay ivy ivy <laughs> ivy is the one he kills who's not his fiance but Perfect. it's like holds on her legs long for a long time and has her taking off her laces oh. and and just like taking yeah taking everything off and then getting into the bed naked and i'm just like they lean can in. Can you imagine like oh. these 1931 audiences just like, oh, yeah. getting hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I mean, and then they, this, I, this shot blew my mind. So her leg is dangling over the edge of the bed, right? And she's swinging it back and forth and she's got her garter on, but it's just her bare leg. They overlay that onto like two minutes of the next scene. Which is so cool because it's just – it's almost like a pendulum of a of a, a clock, you know, mm. like going back and forth right right over him. So it's just this amazingly brilliant device to be like he cannot get this image out of his head. And <laughs> they're showing us that image. They're really hammering it home. And it's – I just love the ballsiness of that kind of thing. Like – like to to be like oh yeah hey by the way so in this shot we're gonna just keep showing her leg even well, though we're into a totally new scene. It seems though it's that then that that thing isn't necessarily ballsy because it's not like these it's not like people in <laughs> yeah you're right in you know con- what it, it's ballsy it, in the context of what films the majority of the films of that era we've seen. It's it's ballsy when you think in, th- in terms of things always having code. Right, like this is right. post-code world. You think of uh, that's only then were there limitations necessarily right. to what <laughs> you know could be considered ballsy or not. So this one is just you just they're just adults being like, oh yeah, this is a story of this guy again with this kind of woman, and yeah. this is the kind of thing going on. So this is just what you show. It's part of the story, you know. It's so true. It's it's funny to think like. You know, we've it's <laughs> this idea of being uh, modest or conservative or um, uh, what's the right term for this? Like, I guess I want to say puritanical, but that's not exactly right. But just this like, oh, we don't show things or you don't, you know, it may I think it makes a modern person feel as though. It's always been that way. Yeah. And that just simply isn't true, right? Like pornography has always existed. That is – it's not like – it's not a new thing. People have always wanted to see naked bodies or sex or whatever. Right. It's when I think of um, that movie Gothic that we watched where it's that crew of people like orgying, partying it up. I'm like, this is who old people were or or, (laughs) as in past people were or like – uh, Barry Lyndon or whatever. I'm like, no, there was no, no one who was censoring anything. <laughs> Maybe, you know, there was, there was, uh, there are as far as who groups. people, as far as, yeah, no, as far as who people actually were though, like, you know. Yeah. We, we want to bone. I mean, that's just like kind of what, who we are. And then, mm-hmm. you know, every group or society or whatever in dependent on era or, or, region or uh, whatever influence has their they land somewhere on the spectrum of repression or not of of that natural impulse it's it's a double-edged sword how it's done you know there's all the 
problematic, sexist ways that, you know, in the 80s, let's say, uh-huh. that was kind of the the progression of that. But, like, I appreciated that there it did feel like a world where people were having sex, you know, and even, yeah. like, the Goonies, let's say. You yeah. know, there was kind of the undertone, undertone. You know, there was... It was there. They felt real people in that sense versus, I don't know, you watch... I don't know. I don't know. I don't go on a tangent, but it's like Revenge the, of new, the, nerds. the new the new Star Wars is versus oh, the old sure. Star Wars is. Yeah. yeah. Or as attractive as everyone is in the Marvel movies, it doesn't seem like anyone's actually having sex with each other. You know, it's <laughs> weird. I don't know. That's true. That's weird. That is true. And you can acknowledge it though, and I guess you can do it in a way that's I think not sexist, but still kids appropriate in the way right. that 80s movies did. Anyway, don't need to go on that further, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but uh, yeah, for the, the sake of this film, it's there wasn't even, like, necessarily a context that would have made these people stop and go, oh, is this too racy? It's just, no, they're just making a movie. What limitations are there? <laughs> well, and also, it is very to the point of the story. Mm-hmm. Right, we're talking about un uh, untethered impulse, and so that that is part and parcel of <laughs> of this story. Or th- like those things go hand in hand, one way or the other. So you better you yeah. better show it, or show so at least tap it on the door. The, the sort of like the intentionally cringy stuff of uh, Mister Hyde moving in on ivy was there specific stuff in there that worked for you i think just the whole the whole depiction of his behavior i mean it just immediately put like like uh you know raises your cockles where you go you know like that's not how you should behave around anybody like it's horrible it's another like he's basically the the worst he's the worst bar patron again (laughs) (laughs) he really is but (laughs) but then it you know it expands further into their actual relationship i mean he's just a horribly abusive you know misogynistic controlling manipulative asshole the whole time i mean he beats her up that um that comparison again of the bar patron like i love how like a lot of those bar patrons i'm sure you encountered uh they're very um very fashionably dressed or very dressed to the nines you know? oh, sure <laughs> like he is in this film that cracked me up like even as mr hyde we see him take the moment to pick out like the right cape and shirt or whatever he's picking yep. out get his cane still be a man about town of course you oh know, yeah there was this show one up guy, at the bar there's this one guy who used to come into the bar in new york he'd always have like a really really nice scarf on and a really nice long coat uh but he also would put like three inch lifts into his shoes you know it's like it was all this bullshit facade and he you know before he would get super drunk he was a fairly okay guy to be around like a nice dude but he really like he was such a bad alcoholic that instead of buying a bunch of drinks at the bar he would have one drink to sort of establish that he was there and like talk to people and then he'd go down to the bodega like a block away and he would buy like six of those little nips shots for like they're like a dollar each or something like that at the bodega and he'd just pound them so he'd have like six shots right on he'd just go out on the sidewalk 
pound them, and then come back in the bar. And for the longest time, we were like, how did he just go from zero to a billion drunk, <laughs> like, in in the ne- last 15 minutes? Like, I, had, did you serve him a bunch? Did, like, he have a bunch of shots here? And, and we'd all be, like, looking around like, no, I'm like, we haven't served him. He was only gone for 10 minutes. Like, where'd he go? And we eventually found out from the bodega owner, he's like, yeah, that guy's a problem. He keeps coming in here, and I keep telling him he can't buy that many of those little shots at a time, and he gets upset and blah, blah, blah. So we found out what was happening. But when he would come back into the bar, he would be a different person. Tim, you realize how perfect that is comparing it to Mr. Hyde or like I, I drinking the potion, getting it, on the street, drinking his potion. It was really <laughs> remarkable. That whole interaction that I had with him ended with – he came into the he did exact same thing. He was always doing this stuff. He'd be out of control. He'd be screaming and yelling a lot of the time over like a sports game or something. But one day I'm sitting behind or standing behind the bar. He comes back in and I see him and I go, oh man, here we go. He's he's at you know he's lit up as usual. And he walked straight up to this these two girls who were sitting at the bar, who he had not engaged with at all. And I'm like, you know, I'm keeping an eye on him because I'm like, he's this is the the scenario where he does something stupid. He he sidles up to one girl, and he's looking at them like he's in the conversation, and they kind of, you know, eventually they look over like, what's this guy like breathing down our neck? Like, who is this dude? And she's like, excuse me, and he goes, fuck you, bitch, right in her face, unprovoked, and I was like. Holy shit. And I immediately like had to get out from behind the bar and grab him and be like, what are you doing? Like you like this is completely unacceptable. So I kicked him out. For the next, and I said he's he's not allowed in the bar anymore. For the next month, he would come and stand outside of the bar and ask to talk to me and apologize. And I was like, no, I no, I'm not interested. And eventually did this whole thing of like, I need to talk to you. He like, he kind of cornered me on the sidewalk, had a whole thing, cried, did the whole thing. I, I, I would never do or say anything like that. And I'm like sitting there going, yeah, man, but you did. Like I was there. You don't know you did because you were so smashed. You didn't know what you were doing. But like, that's the problem. So yeah, you're not allowed in here anymore. But it is, you're right. It's exactly the same thing. He almost didn't even know he was the Mr. Hyde person. Any other insight from that story time with Tim that you can connect to our film? (laughs) (laughs) Asking for forgiveness per se. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's in a way the final scene with Jekyll and Muriel where he says, I have to leave. Like, I can't be with you because of me is sort of the same plea that he made that this guy made with me in the bar. He's like, I know I have a problem. I need to like go get it dealt with or whatever. So it's very similar. Yeah. I, I love, this is super quick just to get it out of the way, the generic, but like just classic and so awesome. Like you mentioned his, his vials, his test tubes, his beakers, <laughs> yeah. just getting him yeah pour these like precise amounts of just doing his, his funny science doings is just, it was just so satisfying and fun seeing that. Always, that whole set, great. I, I, his, his laboratory, 
Oh yeah, that, that is staircase. Beautiful. Oh, so neat. And then like the whole all of the gymnastic sort of like stunt stuff that he oh was doing God. is so incredible. And like having it be in this realm of like borderline, he's like almost like a chimpanzee. Like he's agile and he's swinging from stuff. And like I loved it when he swung down in his escape after his yeah. murder, where he swung down from the one staircase levels to the other and just yeah. completely bypassed the people <laughs> running after him, the police or whoever. Oh, it was so I funny. Mean, it's and pretty I feel incredible like I, stunt work. And it it got to me too in the way like that stunt specifically. I guess all his stunts when he was in Mr. Hyde mode were it's like that's how I feel like I can move in some dreams, you know, where <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like completely plugged into, you know, there's the bad Mr. Hyde side too. But for me, it also represents, you know, being so comfortable and plugged into your physicality where it's like, Someone like me is like a somersault is always like so hard to to process or whatever. But like certain times, you know, yeah, though just being able to completely channel the simian side and just like being able to do without thinking in that sense of swing from one level to another is, is, is fun <laughs> to see happen and yeah. relatable in a in a roundabout sense too. So cool. The um the last big I don't know last last thing I had whether it's big or not. I don't think it is. It's a specific thing. <laughs> was I loved the moment where he's threatened or basically held hostage at gunpoint when he yeah. is as Mr. Hyde. That scene is really really good. For me what I yeah, I want to hear from you. You like so much about, but yeah, for me I liked how it helped define who Mr. Hyde was in this case where it just felt like it was doubling down on the sort of the ego self-serving side yeah. versus necessarily the all animalistic side because all yeah. animal side would just be maybe re- willing to kick the gun out of his hand or, or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. But the fact that he was so concerned about his aims and his goals, kind of like, you know, uh, Dr. Jekyll is his other side, his other half, to show no, he still uh, can. The fact that he can be held at gunpoint, I thought was really noteworthy and interesting, and worked for me. Yeah, you know this. This to me relates very much to sort of things you hear about when you go down the the rabbit hole of of serial killers and psychopaths. This sort of the predominant uh, motivation is actually self preservation, so that they can continue to do the the horrible things that they do. It's not. It's not that he actually has remorse, right? It's not about remorse. And, he, and, and, and Hyde shows this by saying, okay, fine. If you want to see it, you can see it, whatever, <laughs> right? Like, I don't care. I just need to survive. And so he takes the potion in front of the, the other guy. Like that whole thing of it's very similar to psychopathy or psychopathy behavior of like psychopathic. Yeah, I don't care. I, I I'll I I'm not trying to show you that I'm remorseful. I could fake it maybe, but like that's not what it's about. It's just about me finding a way to survive. It's total self preservation to keep going. And so in that moment for Hyde, it really is about look. I'm in trouble and I'm about to get caught. So I'll show you who I really am 
because it's more important that I survive this moment than retain the secret. You know, and I think that whole scene is just it's really exciting in a way because there's there's something at stake. There's I mean, basically everything's at stake. And he reveals himself. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Great. Well, did you have any last things that worked for you you wanted to say? Uh no, I think that's it. Covered covered it all. It's exciting. Lots of great stuff, and let's see if there's anything that was not so great for us in our next section. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? (laughs) My only thing I had, I feel like, was on that level of this could have just been a first-time viewing I was kind of missing something that I went later on thing where I didn't quite follow or get his motivation for drinking the potions, the, uh, the potion, those first subsequent times. Hmm. It just kind of just took me out of it a little bit. Um, but I feel like it was more just cause I missed something, but I, I don't know. Wait, you mean the first time he takes it? No, all the times he takes it after, the times he takes oh. it after the first time and <laughs> yeah. before he's forced to prove <laughs> that, you know, who he is. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess they're really, yeah, what is his motivation there? He just, he enjoyed being Hyde? I guess. No, you know what it is? I know what it is. It's in the story. The reason he does it again is because Muriel's dad has taken her away. And he's upset. Got it. Okay. Remember, she gets taken. She's going to be gone for like a month or two months or something like that. So he's basically doing it because he's an alcoholic and he's upset because his (laughs) fiance is being taken away. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. He's just acting out because he didn't get his way. (laughs) Great. Oh, did you have anything? Yeah, so my my only real thing is the total lack of any mu- any um musical score. There is music in it, but it's always like sort of in-camera practical stuff like there's a quartet playing or like he or and or Muriel are playing the piano. And I just it's not it's not really <laughs> it's not that it didn't work, but I just wanted to imagine what the movie like what having a score could add to the movie um and i don't know that it would but i won't i had that desire i guess and i was like man i kind of wish there was like an underlying kind of haunting score i think it would just make things that much more cool it's not like wall to wall but you know it's funny I should have mentioned this and what worked, but I loved the opening music using Toccata oh. and Fugue in D minor. Absolutely. So I think that's part of what made me feel this way is because getting set up with that, I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to get that kind of vibe throughout. And then it kind of just doesn't have it. Well, for me, the effect was, okay, here we go in a movie sense, having no expectations for what the music could or should be. Mm-hmm. So I lo- loved it for that. Yeah. 
But I actually loved it throughout with no music. And I remember especially towards the end or at the end, it was, I think, during his last transformation, sort of um, when he shows up at her window in their whole little fracas and then getting chased down and shot. Mm-hmm. It had this, like, kind of, you know, how how defer to horror films, uh, you know, having weight with no music to them and working, you know, mm-hmm. just in a certain dramatic sense with no music, feeling real in that sense. Uh, it was totally affecting and effective that way, where I just felt like, oh, God, this is especially just kind of gruesome and intense and just and dramatic without uh, because there was no music playing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that, it. you know, for my own personal sensibilities, uh, you can enhance the effect of no music that much more when you have music in other places, right? And that's that really is just a taste thing for me. I'm and again, I'm not even sure it would work or make this better <laughs> in this film. But as sort of a generalized thing that I like, I, I would have loved to see how that might work. I'm wondering if it's like it, a, having some diegetic music throughout helped me. You know, because yeah. you had the music in the bar always throughout, or there yep. was a little the stage show going on. You had the dance scene. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe that helped me throughout. Yeah, yeah, it has its moments for sure. Um, You know, you made me think of a a shot that I loved (laughs) we didn't mention. (laughs) So maybe you can put this in the Instagram um, stills. When he's being chased through the town, there's one particular camera shot that's sort of, um, I don't know, it's sort of low. It's looking up at the wall and you see him run around the corner and his shadow on the back wall grows as he runs past camera and it's huge, right? Like the shadow becomes huge and it's super crisp. And then the townspeople or the cops or whoever are chasing him do it. And that you get their shadows too. It is beautiful cinematography. So there you go. I put a thing that worked in what did not work. That's how great this movie is. This was, uh, (laughs) this ended up being, what kind of sort of maybe didn't work and more of what did work. So (laughs) (laughs) as we'll, as we'll roll with it. Great. Well then let's finish up here with our next section. Things of note. Things of note. (laughs) This should be interesting. I mean, there's so many adaptations, Tim. There's, there's kind of, you said there was, you know, the 10 other adaptations. There was at least, it looks like five, not even counting stage plays and radio plays and other things like that. It looks like there were, there were about a dozen film versions of this before this one. Like, oh my God, really? Yeah. There's oh two from Jesus. 1908. There's 1909, 1910, 1912, 1913. And then then you have other, and then it goes on, you know, we we even had Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, son of Dr. Jekyll, a blaxploitation version, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. Uh, It looks like a a comedy, Jekyll and Hyde together again. Um, We had, let's see. I mean, I would even count, this isn't on here, but the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask, Totally mm. seems like yeah. Jekyll and Hyde type story. Um, the Nutty Professor, Jerry, yeah. you know, both of those versions. Um, so definitely uh, plenty that's been um, 
plenty, plenty of versions. Uh, there was trying there to poke was also, out some highlights. What was the one that came out with? Um, it's the name of the woman. It's got Julia Roberts and um, John Malkovich in it. That's that's a Jekyll and Hyde. Like he plays Doctor Jekyll. Um, damn, what is that called? It's called Mary Riley. Yeah, Mary Riley. That's right. Yeah, like the- even that. That's pretty. <laughs> A modern or not modern, but a modern uh, era take on this from 1996. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's it works for a reason. It looks like our most recent one, at least listed here on the Wikipedia, for a whole entry on adaptations of Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde was a 2008 film called Igor or Igor uh, with Jennifer Coolidge. Starring as the henchwoman of Doctor Schadenfreude, as uh, Eddie, played by Eddie Izzard. So that kind of wow, that that okay. sort of film. Oh wait, I clicked on it. It's it was totally it was like this. They were voicing it. It was um a uh, an animated oh, animated cool. film. Maybe it's this doc. Maybe Doc Jekyll and Hyde just kind of appears in that one. That's listing those two. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so also. This was nominated for three Academy Awards. It uh, March won Best Actor. He co-won. I've never oh, heard that right. happening that's, in the, I think the Academy it's the only Awards. Time. Yeah, because yeah, the Academy Awards were only, what, like a few years old at that point. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> tied with Wallace Beery for The Champ. And then uh, that's, that was for Best Actor. Frederick Martz, and then um, it was nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Adaptation Writing. Yeah, there, you know, so Miriam Hopkins, there was a really interesting, um, what do you call it, uh, um, little preamble for this. I watched it through Turner Classic Movies, and there's this preamble that they do for those. That was really cool talking about how Miriam you know, had kind of risen to fame and was looking for a, a, a next project and a big thing. And she really, um, she wanted to do, she wanted the Muriel character, the the fiance. And the director, I believe, basically said, you can do that. That's totally fine. But if, but if you do Ivy, it will make you a star. Like it will, it will make like, solidify you as a star and so she was like okay and she did and she got huge huge praise for it because it was a departure from some of the stuff she had done previously and was like you know a pretty it was a much more meaty role and she really was chewing the scenery and going for it yeah um and also this this is is some stuff to straight uh, that's cool this is some more stuff that's straight from the wikipedia i'm jealous you watch the turner classic movie intros i i love watching those Those they're cool john barrymore was originally asked by paramount to play the lead role in an attempt to recreate his role from the 1920 version of Jekyll and Hyde. But he's already under a contract with Metro-Golden-Mayer. Paramount then then gave the part to March, who was under contract and who bore a physical resemblance to Barrymore. So I think he'd already been cast as like a Barrymore light for other things. But it's just so funny that they were... I'd never heard of that where something is an actual remake, but using the same actor from the original. like. (laughs) <laughs> you usually, not- I feel like I've heard of that happening in the universal, like 
stable of of actors at at a certain point and i don't remember mm. who it was but that's crazy it's not really i don't know it's yeah I, it just muddies the waters of what's a reboot <laughs> what's a remake Seriously. all that stuff um another quoting directly from wikipedia when Metro Golden Mayor remade the film 10 years later with Spencer Tracy in the lead, which is that version we'll, we'll watch eventually, the studio bought the negative and the rights to this version and you know the 1931 version we watched and the earlier 1920 silent version, Whoa. paying one and a quarter million dollars Jesus. to do so. Every print of the 1931 film that could be located was recalled and destroyed, and for decades the film was believed to be lost. So the what Tracy the version was was the 1941 version that they did this all for was much less well received. And March jokingly set, sent Tracy a telegram thanking him for the greatest boost to his reputation of his entire <laughs> career. But can you? It's like they they what an insane like thing to try. It's like so we have a new version of this movie coming out. Let's physically eradicate the previous one that's actually better. Like what? That's crazy. Honestly, you know. This is the type of behavior and mentality that I, I, honest to God, do not understand. It's so, it's so strange and, and it, and it exists, but I just can't wrap my head around that kind of behavior. Can you imagine if, like, the if Universal and John Carpenter insisted on erasing the original thing from the another world, like from existence, when I mean, they released really, the new like, thing? Like, what in the world? <laughs> Even worse, if the if the prequel, you know, that came out in whatever twenty ten or something like that, if they had said, okay, but this is the this is the one from now on, so we're going to get rid of the thing from another world and John Carpenter's, just yeah, get rid maybe, of maybe yeah, maybe something about it just being ten years later. But then they were wanted to erase the nineteen twenty one too from twenty one <laughs> years earlier. So like, oh, like man. imagine if with it they remake like. They did that horrible Poltergeist remake. I haven't seen it, but I've just heard it's terrible. Imagine if they said, oh, yeah, we better erase the original Poltergeist. (laughs) It's just insane. It is insane. To make a point of how crazy that thinking is. But it's just just funny that they they attempted to do it. This film could have been lost and essentially was for years. Um, I think it's important to uh, mention Wally Westmore, who did the makeup. This was like his first makeup, like like lead makeup job. Cool. And then went on to do, oh my God, so many, so many. His career went all the way to, uh, let's see, the late 60s, it looks like. So, I mean, he did a ton of movies. But yeah. Oh, and, and what did you want to tell us? I, I Maybe it is Struss, not Struss. I was thinking of some, uh, maybe a composer's name or something, I forget. But yeah, you want to tell us about Carl Struss. Oh, yeah, the cinematographer? All right, well, just think about this for a second. This is the dude that did the – he shot the original Ben-Hur, the 1925 Ben-Hur, which is sort of acclaimed for its um, cinematography. Uh, He did – let's see, the next big one. Well, then he did this. Um, And then, of course, the biggest of – of all time, big, big time movies for cinematography. And especially at the time was gone with the wind. <laughs> like that's the cool. same dude. So pretty amazing. I like, he also did like, the great um, dictator, which I love the cinematography in. So like he's, he was the shit. 
<laughs> he did uh, Island of Lost Souls with Bella Lugosi. So awesome. there's that Bella connection again. And then look at his last film was the 1958 The Fly. Yep. So good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and what Limelight, the Charlie Chaplin movie. That that was good. Yep. Cool. Great. Yeah. Um, so what a team. Give any a other break. things of note you had? Uh, no. So I just wanted to pose the question here, Tim, I thought was interesting where I sort of already brought this up, but considering they bring up the idea that Mr. Hyde is, you know, a channeling and a releasing of an animal side, let's say, Mm -hmm. a pure instinct impulse side. It kind of brought up already how this doesn't feel like it's, it's still a measured version of what I'd imagine that being. You know, mm-hmm. like when he's, he still goes into a bar and sits down and talks to the woman. Like I imagined <laughs> him a different. And so that's my question to us is like, what would that other version look like? Like I imagine him not being able to walk down the street without just sort of accosting everyone he sees. And like, as soon as he walks into the bar, just like, going after every, like, like on this, you know, it was great. I love the touches in this performance where it's like he, when he's walking in the bar, how he just like kind of feels a woman's exposed back and then keeps going. Mm-hmm. But he'd be <laughs> yeah. doing a lot more than that. I feel like just not, not even just towards women, but just in general, just carrying himself. And I'm just, is that too far to even be the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde premise? Or is that, I th- could you do that? Is I that think- more just like Wolfman, you know? Well, from a story, like, (laughs) from a story point of view, you have to restrain yourself, right? Like, uh, you know, in the story. You can't just have him be a frothing at the mouth, you know, animal, because then it just becomes, like, he uh, ceases to have sort of, uh, I don't know. He doesn't have that agency of goals and force. Yeah, but it's... Altered states, isn't that the direction that kinds of ends up going in? It's like a full on, like actual monkey <laughs> at a certain kind point. Of, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, I think that if you're going to go there, you have to create some sort of conceit that says, you know, the, the, the longer he goes, the longer he stays in this state, the more animalistic he becomes, like it, it sort of scales up. And so he needs to, that becomes the struggle is that the 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 percentage of Dr. Jekyll that's still there needs to keep that under wraps. And the danger is always that you're going to go over your time limit and and there is no turning back if you go too far. And then you can figure out like, you know, the the complications that arise in getting close to that and why why you would let it go too far like whether it's a matter of practicality that he can't like in this movie he 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 needs the serum um and can't get to it or if it's more of a a circumstantial matter of like the the interpersonal like experience that's going on like does he want to not turn back into uh Dr. Jekyll or Jekyll. Do you, do I don't you know. see what I'm yeah, see it, what I mean though? If it, that it would do, be, you, do you think if it was about someone literally following every evil impulse that it would be even more extreme? It would be extreme, that's for sure. I just wonder if how you, you gotta rein, you know, like where you put the reins 
in terms of keeping a story going, like having. I mean, that's what I want to see. I mean, (laughs) I'm sure it'd be causing conflict. It would just maybe be a more immediate physical one. Um, Yeah, it's tough. You can't, you can't just, you can't, uh, the Hyde character always has to have some semblance of consciousness. Otherwise, they just get, you know, animal control would come out and capture you and put you in a cage and that'd be that. I still imagine, though, them having consciousness, like, even if it was fully animal, you'd still, it'd be like, you know, Tourette's syndrome or whatever. You'd still be lashing, you know, calling everyone this, saying, I want this. I'd like, you know, Hmm. just... That's interesting. Screaming horrible things at everyone or Uh, just doing malicious, you know, saying the worst evil things to everyone, making everyone feel horrible. I think it it definitely opens up a lot of interesting possibilities in terms of commentary on things like, you know, mental, uh, mental deficient, not deficient. What am I trying to say? Like psychological disease, you know, like mental health stuff. And I don't know if disease is the right term. Um, but you know, things like schizophrenia or, um, bipolar or, you know, I mean, you could just make a movie about being bipolar and it's, it could, you could have it be in the same realm. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it's an, (laughs) like I said, sort of at the beginning, there's, it's such that you can, you can kind of apply a whole spectrum of different thematic things and it still probably works, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Great. Well, if you're ready to put a bow on this, shall we slide into our recommendations? <laughs> sure. <laughs> slide on in. Great. I'll slide in with uh, felt compelled for whatever reason that had been on my shelf to revisit I guess since it came out on Blu-ray like 12 years ago, 10 years ago, I haven't watched it, but the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, I think from 2008. Um, yeah, it's pretty intense. It was great. It was great. It held up so well. I loved it. And um, I knew when I first watched it, I'm like, there's something to this. Like, There's a <laughs> lot going on here that I feel like I'm... I'm feeling, but like missing in an intellectual sense, you know, or it's just, it's a lot happening when it doesn't seem like much happens at all in a way. Um, anyway, it was, it was really, really good. That's why I'm recommending to, to watch it or revisit it. Yeah, it's a good one. I should rewatch that. I haven't, I only watched it once a long time ago, probably like a year after it came out. Um, cool. I'm going to recommend dead what I watched last night which I tend not to watch this type of movie, but I was compelled um, by my significant other to do this because uh, she loves dogs. And so we watched Togo, which is pretty amazing, to be honest. I I was very moved by it, and it's extremely exciting, and it's just really well done. And it's about um, one of the lead dogs of um, – there was a diphtheria outbreak in Alaska in – I forget what the era was, but I think it's early 1900s. And um, it was affecting only kids. And so this – in Nome, Alaska, they 
sent a, a whole bunch of dog sled guys to go get a serum to help the kids not die. And one dog sled team in particular was led by this dog, Togo. And um, now I'm forgetting the guy's name, but whatever. Um, played by Willem Dafoe. And this one team did like 234 miles of the relay. Uh, you know, so they do relay, right? To like they trade off the the total mileage between the dog teams. But this one team did did 231. Every other team averaged about 30 miles. <laughs> and it's it is remarkable. They they added, you know, they sort of combined some of the events just to make it more exciting from other um uh instances of of adventure that they experienced but all in all it's a really fun film it's exciting it's heart wrenching at times and uh, if you like dogs man you'll love it if you don't like dogs or you're like me who's kind of in the middle uh you'll still probably love it it's really good and where can people find it uh, I think we watched it on Disney Plus. Great. Togo. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's funny, you know, Balto, the dog Balto, was the one that got all the fame for that particular instance of, of notoriety for, the for like, that run, so to speak. But that's only because Balto was the final lead dog of the team that, that officially delivered the serum. Um, but this other dog apparently did the vast, vast majority of the, the actual trek, which is cool. Unsung. Great. So, Tim, did you end up finding the hat? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I didn't. Hang on. Let me see where it is. I think it's over here. I got it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. It's your turn to pull if I'm not mistaken. Am I mistaken? I don't I think I I believe that's correct. Are you ready? Yes. Say when. When. Okay. Whoa. All right. Here you go. I'm going to turn it towards you. Can you see that? Mon, 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 monsters from Taiwan. Cool. No clue what this is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to find out. What, um... What year are we looking at here? It's more recent. I know that much. I feel like last 10, 20 years. 2017. Great. Cool. From Taiwan. Well, great. Until then, we hope you watch it. Thanks for being, you know, we thank you for being here. But our big, our big ask, should you care to help us out, help our, our, our community, our friend, family out here, is to tell a friend that you enjoy the show and that we exist and we're here (laughs) dismembering on a weekly basis. And we've got quite the backlog now, so I'm sure there is something for everyone as far as horror films to pick from. Seriously. And and I think we're in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to probably try and jump into some more like new release realm or close to new release stuff. We did talk about a film coming out mid-February. So, uh, yeah, we're doing a new first new release we've done in a while. So we're looking forward to that. That'll be fun. Yeah. But either way, of course, we thank you for being here. And either way, whether you're feeling more Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. That's right. And we will 
See you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.